Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder feels the quest for Christian wisdom. We have finally gotten our dear brother, Ryan Hurd, for the Trinity interview, the third in a series of three discussions we wanted to do with uh, our good brother, Hurd, on the doctrine of God. We had to reschedule it a couple of times, but we're finally here, suffering before glory, and we're really just going to pick up the we're going to pick up the conversation where we where we sort of left off what we did in the in the last two uh, in the last two uh, interviews the last two discussions we we mostly are talking about the names of God this this tradition of doing the doctrine of God and and, and, and an adequate doctrine of God in the tradition of divine naming both the negative names and the positive names and maybe one way of getting into this this uh, question, Ryan, or this this topic when we talk about the Trinity is, um, it, it seems to me that sometimes when the Trinity is discussed these days, <coughs> there's a there's a way in which the Trinity is a kind of uh, a, a kind of vaguely floating formula that we can invoke, you know, one in essence and three in person, and 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 almost the entire grammar of the Trinity. Is is almost almost in fact just a memorized formula, without a great deal of penetrative understanding to exactly what those terms are doing, and why those terms came to take on the role that they did in a process of knowing. So maybe there's another way of putting that. It, it seems as I you know as I listen to you over the last two lectures talk about the names of God, what becomes very clear to me is that the doctrine of God and the moves that are made in a traditional doctrine of God require a very ordered series of, of things, as you put it, sort of being made in the mind. And at some point in that series of ordered knowing, the Trinity comes up. Uh, and that's interesting to me is to think kind of about the almost, if I could put it this way, like the discursive place of the Trinity. At what moment does it, does it enter the, the chain of knowings about God and 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 be, be, begin to belong to this this collection of things we're calling the divine names, such that we we have divine names for the for the one God, but then divine names that are specifically in the Trinity. What what sort of mental juncture does that does that begin at? Maybe that's a way to begin talking about the Trinity. Yeah, those are uh, great great points to. Uh begin thinking about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, that initial issue that you mentioned that is a constant threat whenever you engage in theology, especially as you approach theology and you don't perhaps have as much training, is the tendency to be rather nominalist as you engage. So it's just a, a number of things you say, a number of mental moments that you have and it doesn't feel like it amounts to much more than empty air in the mind and things like that. Yep. That issue, if you have not overcome it and learned how to be more realist, one might say, about doctrine of God generally, is just going to become more intense and, and, and worsened by virtue of the fact that when we get to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, we're coming up against something which is never encountered in this life, so to say, whereas in the doctrine of the essence and attributes of God, we do at least have the, the cold, hard creatures outside us that we can touch and lay hands on, and which the intellect, when it offers up names to God of the essence and attributes, when it says God is wise, good, and things like that, then the intellect reverts all the way down to its originary position where it's taken up those names from creatures mm, right. and it has its offerings made to be true. It has itself made to be true. The Thomas Aquinas talks about this when he says the mind, the intellect places a ratio in re, a mental aspect in reality. And what he's describing there is a phenomenon that you can really become very conscious of as you engage in the doctrine of God, where you can, in a certain mode, feel your mind click into reality as you encounter creatures and you feel truth made in yourself. And that is something that happens in judgment. That's something that the intellect has to 
uh, learn how to perform more and more. The issue is, as I say, when we get to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, we are similarly starting from creatures in a certain mode. Namely, we're starting from supernatural revelation, chiefly compassed in Holy Scripture. But at the end of the day, even though we are also reverting in a similar way to have our mind made true when we say God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there is a, a similar verification happening that you can become discerning of and perceptive of. Nonetheless, it, the fact remains that we're not actually encountering the Trinity in this life like we are encountering love. So I can look out into the world and I can perceive what love is with us and among creatures. And I can rest on that in a certain mode. And that prevents the nominalist issue, the, the kind of empty puffs right. of air version of naming, which, uh, which is, is, is a deep threat for many people today, especially the way the vast majority of theologians uh, even even professional theologians in the academy operate about doctrine of God. It's 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 usually uh, just basically nominalist in in, in lots of ways. Uh, it's something we learn in Sunday school to say one in essence, three in persons, these types of things. And it's very popular today to talk about in terms of grammar or saying the right words and, and these types of things. Actually, the 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 classic way of doing the doctrine of the Trinity recognizes that there's a distinction that's really fundamental between saying the words in the material order, not only with the mouth, but also with the brain and having the insights in the immaterial order, which is where the doctrine of the Trinity really lives. Mm. So Thomas Aquinas taking up from Hilary of Portier's book of the Trinity doctrine, of the Trinity uh, book four uh, notes that the heretics like Arians look at the words of Holy Scripture and they recite those terms and they fill them with insights that are not true to the sense of Holy Scripture. But the Catholic theologian Thomas says, treat Scripture like a principle of our theology and not only looks at the letters not only shakes the mouth by reciting the letters as they appear on the page, not only reiterates the shape and the sound and the meaning, so to say, of those letters in the brain, but actually abstracts from those the insights or the senses therein, which are what is made to be true as the mind encounters God and things like that. Yeah. So, yes, this is, a, this is a deep issue and it's something we have to begin with uh, quite clearly. Yeah, it would be analogous to me saying, I know Babe Ruth uh, lived at this time in history, hit this many home runs, smoked this many cigars, weighed this amount of weight, and therefore I know Babe Ruth. Right. Um, it would be more, it, what, what it seems like you're saying, and clarify if I'm wrong, because I could be mis misunderstanding you, but I think I'm tracking with you is that um, <clears throat> to understand the Trinity has more to do with understanding existence as a thing that you're participating in, in itself. So the fact that I'm a human and I'm alive amounts to more than mere uh, recitation of what it means to exist. I can tell you I'm happy, I'm feeling lovely right now. I'm feeling sad or angry or whatever, but I know that the truth of my anger or my sadness or my happiness or my joy is uh, more real to me than the language that I put to it. So you would have to almost um, understand what it means to be me when I say I'm happy, then to interpret what I mean to be happy as it as it relates to you. Does this make sense? Or am I so yeah. what let, let, let me let me summarize that a different way, because that could be confusing. Here's what I mean. It seems like what you're saying is um, the pattern of words that we use from Scripture, say something true about God. But unless we 
have been convinced internally uh, because it clicks with us that this is the most fundamental thing that's true about God. And we know that because we just know what it means to be alive in a certain way, a sense, we, we are, are, we are participating in life. Then whatever words you use could communicate something that is on the surface true, but nevertheless false when we talk about the Trinity. Is this what you're saying or? Yeah, I think there's probably elements there that are, that are really tracking well. Um, on the one hand, none of us have any existential hangup or psychological concerns with the fact that you only know Babe Ruth by virtue of various true insights that you have gathered up, which are what we might trivially call facts about Babe Ruth. And you've compiled an, an image in your brain you can also have intellectual insights that abstract from that image and things like that. On the one hand, we, we don't really get hung up about that. And that's good because that's how the mind, the, the intellect, the soul actually works. Um, but on the other hand, you, 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 you are right as well that there is a slight difference between knowing a series of facts and operating with those facts by placing them into reality and placing oneself in an encounter with reality as such. When we get to the doctrine of the Trinity, we have to recall, of course, we're not going to encounter God in this life. Um, but nonetheless, we converge the mind in the right direction in fitting insights that conform us to what God is, even though he is beyond us. And similarly, we, we don't get troubled with the fact that these are truths in the mind, which is the medium wherein we know reality is in the medium of truth. Uh, but on the other, we, we recognize that, that space or distance. So those are, those are, those are uh, complicated things. But as you say, it's right with the language issue, which I know, Dale, is something you uh, really uh, have a finger on is, is a point of concern and an issue. Yeah, there's a difference between having brain knowledge or being able to uh, make your mouth move in a certain way and seeing with the mind, being conscious of something and perceiving it. And those are two very different things. And of course, we recognize that in the beginning, we have to teach people what to do in the material order. Mm -hmm. So they have to move their mouth a certain way and say the right words. But at the end, we have to get them to the right intellectual place as well, which is pulled from the material order so that the whole human person snaps and becomes in sync or in tune with what God is and, and those types of things mm -hmm. as well. Um, tell me why... Uh why the names say, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit. It, when I hear those, of course, I, I, uh, uh, I hear the world of creatures because there are Father, Sons, and Spirit in the world of creatures, and they're sort of reflected back to God. Uh, and yet, knowing God as Father, Son, and Spirit, if I'm hearing what you said earlier, we know in a different way uh, than we know the things we say in the, in the doctrine of the divine unity the way that we know God from the world of creatures in the doctrine of the divine unity sounded like you were saying uh, God's revelation of, of himself to us as Trinity. It, it, it connects to the world of creatures in these images, but it sounded like you were saying that those images function a little differently than they do in the, in the divine unity. How would we say, you know, fa again, father, son, spirit, creaturely terms, how does that kind of work with that claim? Can you help me put that together? Yeah, well, when God uh, condescends to graciously reveal himself for what he is, which is not something we would know him as if he didn't come down and tell us in supernatural revelation, uh, he, as it were, picks up from our level the things which are similar to what he is in himself. And so he adverts our attention 
to fathers in the world, to mm -hmm. sons in the world. You can leave the Holy Spirit off for a moment because that's a bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. But he brings our minds to look at fathers, to look at sons, to look at words, not words as we speak about them in the material order, but words that are produced from an act of knowledge, as Thomas Aquinas says, just as act from act. So when I perform an act of understanding, uh, my intellect functions similar to a father in begetting a concept in my mind, and we call mm -hmm. that a word. So when John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word, God is condescending and pointing to the word on our plane, as it were, and saying that we ought to look at that and consider that as similar or a point of departure for knowing the thing in him, which is similar to that, which we also call a word because it's similar. Mm -hmm. And these uh, places, again, are points of departure in supernatural revelation, the order of grace and the order of mystery, which are announced to us by Christ, who is the revelation of the Father, revelation of the entire Trinity. Thomas Aquinas says rather beautifully in three different places, the Father says all three persons in the word, all three persons are said in the word, and all three persons are known in the name Christ. And that's really true. So we start off from the man Christ. We start off from these other creaturely points of contact, so to say. And then we perform intellectual acts of judgment, various negations, various affirmations. We perform various acts of understanding after we've made those judgments of affirmation, which gather up analogously something of what God is by virtue of what he said he is. And uh, that's the task of uh, Catholic theology as we do the doctrine of the Trinity is by looking at those things very carefully and uh, operating in a certain way. So there's nothing wrong then with, because I know we make the creator creature distinction, and this is a point of, <clears throat> like a first move to just recognize that there is a distinction between the creator and the, and the creation. But there's nothing wrong with beginning with our experience of the creation as we start to think about the Trinity, because God condescended in a person, in Jesus, in the Christ. This is our focal point when we begin to think about God as humans. So God knows our weaknesses. He knows that we cannot know him in this life. And he's bending himself to our weakness in order to be known by his creatures. And he comes to us as a man. Um, so is it wrong to say that it's okay to begin our understanding of God by observations of the things that have been made and then move upward? And I ask this because I think a lot of the conversation right now on the doctrine of God, at least in my circles, it may not be in your circles. Uh, so a lot of what I'm doing here, uh, heard is uh, just answering internet friends that that talk to me <laughs> uh, because you're my friend and uh, I want everyone to hear what you have, you have to say. But it's not uh, wrong to say, I'm going to begin my understanding of God with the world around me and the people I encounter, and that actually communicates something. And then there's an intellectual process, is what I hear you're saying, of insight and understanding that I can infer from those experiences that give me various insights into the Trinity. So it's not wrong to look at relationships between humans, for example, I know, you know, this gets into the whole big discussion that I don't want to take us down into, but it's not wrong to look at human interaction and draw something from that experience and then say, that tells me something about the Trinity and draw insights from that until the understanding clicks 
to give me a glimpse at something that God truly is as he has revealed himself in supernatural revelation. Is that an okay thing to do? Or does that make us heretics, Ryan Hurd? Well, uh, it's not an okay thing to do. Okay. It's a necessary thing to do. Okay. It's not something that can be avoided. A lot of times uh, people can fake themselves into supposing that they're beginning from a different place or even more commonly that they're ending at a different place than the creaturely order. Yes. But in point of fact, we're not only beginning from creatures, but we're also concluding with our feet on the ground. Our minds are pointed towards God. The way knowledge works is in intentions or when the intellect tends to the object it's knowing, uh, we can be pointed or oriented back to God, so to say, but we have stretched up from the creaturely plane and we always are reverting to that until we close with God at the end. However, I would also be good to point out that it's not proper necessarily to think of it in terms of beginning from the natural order of creatures, because we do not in any mode begin from the natural order to speak of the doctrine of God according to uh, the Trinity, or rather we must begin from the supernatural order or the order yeah. of revelation, one might say. So we don't look out into the world at human relationships or things like that as our point of departure per se. Rather, we our point of departure is the supernatural place that God has posited. And we can reach down, so to say, into the natural order and pick up other fitting uh, analogous tools where we use philosophy as a handmaiden and these other images as it were, but we're pulling from the place of faith. And our first step off is from Holy scripture, which is where supernatural revelation is primarily comprised and things like that. So we don't discern that God is father, son, Holy spirit by looking at human fathers God is father from looking at human fathers. And that's something we say of the essence and attributes of God. The son is just as much father as the father is father and the Holy spirit yeah. is father. According to that mode of saying father, right. we're saying a different aspect, a different ratio as Thomas would say of fatherhood in mm. God. When we come to say God is father of the son eternally and things like that. And, uh, we are also looking at the human relation of fatherhood at that point, but we're, we're, we're starting from a different place. So would maybe this, this image work that when you're, when you're talking about the nature of God that's shared among the three members of the Trinity, you do really start and end in the world of creatures, but the motion, the kind of direction is really starting more like what Dale said from quite literally the world as it's hitting you. But then supernatural, and that could even be the perfections contained in fathers and sons and whatever, but that's shared by all members when we go that direction. But it then God reveals himself, God sort of reveals himself, and in the revelation, those certain terms, and in, in fact, only a very few terms, uh, wind up playing perhaps a kind of double duty. They don't just they're not just terms that can be looked at from this vantage point and then shot up into the one God, but they're terms the one God through revelation is designated as signifying something sort of behind the black hole, if you will, <laughs> signifying yes. something about his inner life that you would not know unless he told you, and these are the terms he's chosen to tell you that thing. Uh, uh, something like yeah. that. You, well, maybe we should work on to that because uh, one thing you've been talking a lot about in the in the interviews is this notion of adequacy, and I've been hmm. thinking a lot about it that that um, that adequacy is this is not just yeah adequacy I suppose is this notion that we have a sufficient we as a we have a sufficient uh, uh, set of categories made in the mind. That, that sort of fully explain 
<laughs> that fully explain as much as can be explained to a creature, whatever phenomena I'm trying to interpret. And there's a sort of um, uh, what you've been doing, I think, in, in your work and in these last couple of, uh, uh, of interviews is talking about how these uh, uh, how sort of collections of categories have be become the ways in which we achieve adequacy. You know, you talk about, I think you talk about Aristotle's 10 categories, but then, but then there's adequacy in the doctrine of God sort of, sort of after that achieved in, in late antiquity. When we talk about adequacy in the Trinity, that's a, you know, that's moving a different direction. What, what would you say is the, you know, we, we're, we've gone through negative and positive names at some point via supernatural revelation, there's going to be this special set of names that designates this special set of things about God revealed in scripture, that's the Trinity. How do we achieve adequacy, perhaps in that sense, that fullness in the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, if I can put it that way? Yeah, well, we're going to be performing a, a similar type of process to what we're doing to achieve that uh, adequate categorization or summar summarization of the essence and attributes of God. If you recall, the basic process there is to look at all creatures and boil them down to their least common denominator, one might say, where we have fully contained within each one of those categories the entire order of creatures as such. And we're going to be doing a similar type of move or process technique when we get to supernatural revelation, which we treat as kind of a new starting point, a new order. So if you were to consider it for simplicity's sake, the entirety of Holy Scripture and all the senses of Holy Scripture therein, all of the possible deductions and derivations that you can squeeze out of Holy Scripture, all of the entailments of Holy Scripture, and so on and so forth. You take all of that and you boil it down to its fundamental categories as they pertain to the knowledge of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We actually find there to be only five categories needed in order to say everything you need to say at a fundamental level. This is something that took a very long time, theologians, to develop. Uh, a number of the categories, we call them now Trinitarian notions, a number of these categories were very quick, rather easy, so to say. So right off the bat, paternity and filiation or fatherhood and sonship are uh, achieved quite quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, they're also rather surface level of Holy Scripture as well, which makes it easy. And, yep. uh, and, and indeed, that's, uh, there's a, a lot of deep truth to that. A number of the other notions, however, took quite a long time, uh, several hundred years. For instance, the final notion, the fifth notion is anascibility or unbegottenness, as it's sometimes called. And that's something that the fathers talk about. They say that the father is unbegotten, but that's not properly speaking a notion for various reasons until much later where the conventional sign unbegottenness or anascibility becomes retrofitted, so to say, to signify the mental concept, which is the notion, properly speaking, of anascibility. That's not something that's achieved for a very, very long time. And when the fathers speak of the father as being unbegotten or inascible, they're not dealing necessarily in terms of this adequacy idea, in terms of notions uh, un, uh, uh, dissimilar to how, the, for instance, later scholastics finally achieve it uh, in the end. It appears to be the case that Thomas Aquinas was actually the first one, as far as I have been able to find, who performs the deduction, the reduction, one might say, of the entirety of Holy Scripture uh, on the page and, and, and concludes to these five notions. Um, by the time of Thomas Aquinas, 
it was already broadly speaking known that there were five or close to five or something like five and it was still a bit hazy but as far as the the final proof so to say the the, the actual performance uh the the mental strength the guts it took to uh boil everything down the first time in history it happens when thomas is a a bachelor commentator on the sentences and he performs it in a paragraph and it's uh, one of the most extraordinary paragraphs I've ever read actually. But anyway, we get to these notions and there happens to be five of them. Paternity, filiation, active and passive spiration, which pertain to the Holy Spirit, active spiration being in the father and son conjointly, and then passive spiration constituting what the Holy Spirit is. He passively proceeds is the relation of received love, so to say. And then finally, at the very end, anascibility, which is at the very end, even though it pertains to the father, because this is actually a negation or similar to a negative name. Technically mm-hmm. speaking, it's not a negative name. Not it's created. Right. Not created. It's actually right. not the negative name uncreated. That's a negative mm-hmm. name pertaining to the essence and attributes of God. And we say that negative name of all three persons, even though we might leave it off sometimes to speak of the, the son will say, oh, he's, he is begotten and, and, you know, those types of things, we don't confuse people. Nonetheless, uncreated is a negation of creatureliness, right? right. Which obviously is proper to all three persons, but anascibility is a certain privative name, which is a very, very difficult concept that takes a very long time to achieve because privations with us and among creatures always entail imperfection is posited in the subject who owns that privation. So uh, the way that a privation cannot be uh, inherently positing imperfection in the subject is something that took a very long time for theologians to conclude to. Anyway, anascibility is at the very, very end because it's the uh, representation of every negative judgment that needs to be made in a condensed form similar to the negative name simplicity, except insofar as it pertains to the father himself. So uh, those would be the five Trinitarian notions that uh, summarize the the, the revelation of of the Holy Trinity. Thank you. Um, Maybe it would be helpful if you can talk about what what you mean when you talk about notions so you, you mentioned the five notions, you explain them. I think most of the listeners will have basically an idea of what those words mean. Um, but what do you mean when you say notions? What does a notion entail? A notion in this context is coming from Augustine, who uh, names them notions. And uh, it's a conventional sign that we use to signify the fact that the reality we're speaking of is something within our intellect. Something that's very difficult for people to understand. And it takes a really long time to adjust yourself to is the fact that these things we're saying are in God, paternity, filiation, and so on. As we're talking about them here, we're not talking about how they are in God we're talking about how they are in us, in our minds. Yes. So notions here might bear a similar resemblance to what people normally think of when they think of notions or ideas. Uh, These are the mental places on our side of the equation that are the true mental stances that one is to occupy in order to confront Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as they are in God outside the mind. And so notions are uh, the term we use to, to describe those mental spots of, uh, of consideration. Thomas Aquinas defines notions in this context, of course, which is a very precise use of the word notions proper to uh, Trinitarian theology. He defines notions as rationes cognoscendi, or mental places for knowing ratio here is could be variously translated ratio is a very difficult word especially in thomas aquinas to translate it means 
yeah, the 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 uh, positions of the mind, the insights of the mind for the purposes of knowing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you might think of it as the launch point in the mind to then verge upon the individual persons as them as they are in themselves, and uh, that's broadly speaking what a notion is. There's a lot of technical metaphysics and things like that, but there are ideas in the mind in order to know who the persons are. I'm interested in, I wonder if these notions, I mean, obviously they have to be habituated. Mm -hmm. In other words, you don't just arrive at the ability to move in this capacity mentally. What is the process through which the habituation? So Mm -hmm. I know like the conversations that I've been involved with with you over the years and with Joe and watching you and Joe talk, my my sort of um, seat to view those conversations and what you've been doing online uh, with Fred Sanders um, and in your class, uh, what I do is I try to st- sit back and go, okay, so like, how do I arrive at the ability to do what Ryan hurt? Yes. Um, what are ways that we can start to habituate our <clears throat> whole life towards accomplishing the task of being able to move into the notions that you're talking about? What is it that we need to do? Like, I know that that's um, a broad question because it may differ from every person because other people, some people have more talent or more gifts or more ability to be theologians than other people. But what is it that we can base it? What is it that you would say is a, a general program of habituated thought that we can all get on board with that would start to move us towards these notions? Yeah. Is there a program like that? Because I think that one of the problems, Ryan, is that a lot of people say, well, the church fathers can't be understood. The language is just sort of like, magically puffed into existence without any real understanding. Um, you have to be a scholar to even understand any, and not even not a scholar, but a scholar of the first order to begin to understand any of this. This is inaccessible at every level whatsoever. And nobody's right about anything and we can't trust our instincts about anything. So like, what's the point of even understanding any of this? Mm -hmm. So like these five notions that were set out, is there a way that we at whatever level of intellectual ability God has gifted us with can begin to create habits and patterns of relationship to a body of knowledge, but also to God that can move in the right direction. Is that possible? And how do we do that? Yes. I I mean, uh, it just takes uh, a fair amount of concentration and work and time, uh, to be blunt. Part of it is to recognize off the bat that this is a, these are ideas that you have to grow in yourself. You have to make these in yourself. Yes. Thomas Aquinas talks about having notions made in your mind. And that occurs via careful thought, usually is something that you have to be led in. So you have to have someone who already has these ideas very, very firmly in themselves. And then you come along them and they teach you or they cause you to participate in their notions and then they're extended into you, into your mind. Hmm. A lot of it has to do with understanding what fatherhood is, what sonship is and things like that and being very, very reflective and extremely willing to use the scalpel to cut away things that are fuzzy 
So there are a lot of things about fathers, so to say, that don't pertain to the actual relation of fatherhood that we want you to get and acquire in your mind. On the other hand, there are lots of ways and techniques that I can use to invest you with this notion of fatherhood. Lots of analogies, lots of illustrations and all of those. So it's not like that extra baggage is uh, worthless, so to say. But you have to be aware that what you are achieving at the end of the day is five very small but very potent ideas. So you might think that you know the be-all, end-all of, um, you know, have more ideas about the Trinity, when in point of fact, you actually kind of have less. They're just really, really powerful. And then you sit there and you consciously have hold of one of those notions and you talk about it and you teach people and you explain, explain to them and you try to get them to acquire that by whatever means required using whatever words are helpful and things like that. So when I teach the doctrine of the Trinity, that's what I'm doing. I just have in my mind, those five places. And then I try as much as I can to reiterate those very rarely am i letting them know hey there's five things i need to tell you right. to. very yes. rarely am i mentioning something like anascibility which is this last notion because there's not a lot of people who are going to be able to wield such an idea with any sort of significant or helpful power and therefore even letting them know that anascibility is a thing, so to say, out in the open and explicitly is not going to be so helpful. But there are still things that I can uh, express to them in my words and in my movement of my thought and as I unload in them, yes. in my mind, that get across the same effect of having anascibility consciously. And we can come back to anascibility tomorrow today right. we're just going to get paternity and so yeah my, what you're doing is you're you're helping people catch things more than you're explicitly teaching them yeah and that is actually uh that that's reflecting i think what god is doing in supernatural revelation mm -hmm. he's explicitly revealing himself but he's expecting us to catch Mm. a lot of the things that are not explicitly taught in this passage in Isaiah. Uh, and then we can sort of process it and then come back to the text. And then God's like, okay, yeah. son, here's a deeper. And you're like, I see. Thank you. Yeah, um, that's, that's a great, that's a great point because that's what Holy scripture is doing. Yeah. It's using lots of images, lots of analogies, Lots of things that contain imperfection unbefitting to God, which I can use as a theologian to illustrate the mental concept that I have because I've stripped away all the imperfections and you only use those as a crutch to get right. up to this first yes. place. How, and then you would, kick the crutch out from under you. How yeah. would you respond to somebody hearing something like that and saying, does this not make the the metaphysicians as it were <clears throat> the only ones who really know god or really know what's going on in the scriptures because only they can kind of perform all the negations of the kind of improper literal sense or or only they can sort of really capture you know the five notions and held in a kind of intellectual way Do, uh, uh, is there a way to say that uh the ordinary christian without uh, uh, the the precision, the at least the intellectual precision of the of the metaphysician, nevertheless uh, enjoys the Trinity and knows the Trinity in some way, uh, 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 in exactly the same way as the metaphysician, uh, just just not in all the same modes as the metaphysician. That is to say, it's not discursively or formally clear. But sometimes this language can give the sense of like the metaphysician going up Mount Sinai, right? And like, uh, if if it's literally the doing of metaphysics, it's going up Mount Sinai, then only, a, you know, only Aquinas uh, can really achieve the beatific. Or Moses. 
Yeah, or whatever. <laughs> but, right. but presumably there's something of the, the view that actually the ordinary believer can also, per the race, know this thing, know this God, you know, without, uh, without a, that degree of formality, if I could put it that way. Maybe the thoughts about that. It's a both and situation here. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, we know the Holy Trinity through faith and the supernatural light that is gifted to every believer and which is informed by the careful reading of Holy Scripture. And so, no, you do not need to be a genius. You can be uh, anyone and trust the word of God and gather up sufficiently uh, well, so to say. But with that said, yes, there is a really strong distinction that needs to be made between the more and more refined insights that theologians acquire through many, many years of dedicated study and things like that, and whose purpose is not to inflate the mind of an individual, but to be one of the community whose job it is to bring that community back to God. So every Christian is called by God to redeem the earth, to return the earth to God, to return all people to God in faith and love. And certain people have certain tasks for doing that. Right. And we all participate in that saving project of each other. Yep. And mm. we all have our own role and task to fulfill. And yes. there's not, uh, in our day and age, uh, it's, it's certainly possible that someone could have an unhealthy view of expertise and, and, and unhealthily discount the genuineness of their knowledge of the Holy Trinity, especially as they start to encounter theology. And, oh my, the amount of distinctions here is just uh, overwhelming and things like that. And, and then we would need to say to that person, no, let's back up. Let's recognize that we're working from the principle of faith, which you have, or working from the Holy Scriptures, which you know, and we're refining or processing that. And we're just working that through further. Uh, we're, yes. we're, we're plunging that into that deeper. So that's certainly someone who could have that, that problem. But I think today the vast majority of people uh, do need to recognize they probably have perhaps the other side of the equations problem where yep. it's okay to recognize deep, deep expertise and right. to participate in that and allow for theologians to sacrifice for the church and for that sacrifice to be accepted and received because Old grandma out there has sacrificed for the church. Yes. Joe Schmo sacrifices for the church and, and is called of God to sanctify the theologian in all innumerable ways. Yes. And vice versa. And, uh, yeah. And I, I don't want to pull the conversation away from the uh, substance of what we're talking about. But I think that's important to say only because this topic is so hot. Like everyone has an opinion on this and everyone thinks that they have a corner on the truth of what is going on right now when we're sort of trying to retrieve a classical understanding of the doctrine of God. And even the people that believe that they have a corner on the retrieval project are getting things wrong. Yeah. Um, what most of us should say is that is humbling. Um, and most of us don't even have the knowledge to say that that should be humbling because we don't even know that we should be humbled because we don't understand what we should be humbled by. So, um, 
there it's an okay thing to explore it's not an okay thing to um assert confidently at the exclusion of fellowship your particular understandings about the conversation because um it's almost 100 percent uh um assured that you do not have the exposure to what you need to have an exposure to to draw the dogmatic conclusions that you're drawing um and i know that this has been a theme that i harp on and um i don't mean to sound like a broken sort of machine on this front but we're a podcast and people listen to us and so i'm going to say things that i want people to hear and what i want people to hear is if you hear anything from this conversation this culmination of conversations it should be you don't know anything about god and you're sure not you're you're surely not involved in the process of learning to know anything about the trinity as it's been expressed in the tradition of Christianity, most clearly articulated by Aquinas. And so be humble about what you say about the Trinity in the modern age, because you could be getting many things wrong and uh, you would be probably excommunicated from most Christian communities before the 15th century. So just chill. Uh, and, and if we're all trying to have this conversation, beautiful, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's have the conversation. Um, but yeah, just relax, just relax. It's definitely true. The, the one thing I might add is that there is a different level of accountability that might mitigate, uh, the, the, the potential excommunication, uh, yes. on the horizon of, uh, yes. poor, poor Joe, poor Joe, who, uh, is very very eager and loves the lord and really uh, is is studying one of the reasons why a lot of people study is because they're convinced perhaps correctly perhaps incorrectly or perhaps a mix they're convinced that uh that is one way of of being faithful to god yes uh, that's often what they're told and again it, it could be correct it could be incorrect and so I, I definitely wouldn't want to discourage that genuine faithfulness. I, I do think that there is a mode of faithfulness which terminates failure, but which was also faithfulness which God honors and treasures from people. Yeah. And part of the process of working uh, working in these things is uh, a lot of failure. And then yeah. hopefully coming to grips with, oh, there's, you know, the bottom has come out from under me and I've emptied that out. And now we start afresh. And that purgation process is, is definitely inherent and uh, not, sent- not a sign you're necessarily going entirely wrong. Right. Yes. I sent Ryan uh, a couple of weeks ago an email I wrote, I think, uh, on an old list about my, I think it was my 25 Trinitarian propositions. Uh, and this was really, you know, I'm, you know, I'm an, I'm an okay, smart guy. I've read a bunch of books on the Trinity and this really was an attempt of a, you know, an, an, a relatively okay, smart guy to abstract the knowledge of the Trinity. And uh, Ryan got it, of course, and uh, 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 was very gracious <laughs> to me, but there's so many problems with it. But it just goes to show exactly what you're saying. Like you can have the, the God is gracious to our good faith efforts uh, arriving <laughs> arriving in places that are that are that are less than ideal even if they contain maybe some some helpful gestures and maybe that's actually a good way to to kind of bring the conversation to a close um, I gather in the for a lot of people who are kind of intellectuals Trinity is a <sighs> We're talking about sort of the Trinity and the common man, but of course, once you get on the internet long enough, you realize that the Trinity in all these communities is kind of playing a, the role of the cool kids philosophy toy. So, yeah. uh, you know, most of us maybe came of age or, or, or were even introduced into, uh, you know, I tell people like I have to, I have to give credit to like Van Til as 
my little, I was just a young Christian lad. And what's one of the first philosophy thinking Christian guys I read? Well, it's Van Til, Trinity, one and the many, it's the solution to all the problems. So that, you know, that's my first philosophical project is, ah, oh, and it's very attractive. The most distinctive thing about the Christian faith is actually the explainer of all of reality. That's a really good, right, right, <laughs> you know, like, right, fantastic. Right. All right. You know, like, yes. cool. what's interesting, of course, now is, uh, as I've, you know, I'm, I just turned 40 last week, but, you know, I've, I've watched sort of academic trends. Uh, and it's funny to see in the in the more uh, cool kids academic community, your sort of David Bentley Hart and your, your Milbanks and your these sorts of characters. Similarly for them, it seems increasingly the Trinity plays this, this funny role as a sort of as a sort of the the one piece of metaphysics that everybody else is missing, but if you get the Trinity and the incarnation, mm. voila, the, the world makes a new degree of sense. And Ryan knows me enough to enough to know that there's a little immature part of my soul that still wants that all to work out somehow. Yes. <laughs> and maybe there's don't, like don't do it, Joe. Don't maybe do there's it. one like <laughs> maybe if with the forty negations and whatever, there's some way in which you get one little thing out of it or something. But uh, talk to us about that. You know, that that I think a lot of your work, as I see it, is it, it, it's equally recovering that kind of the, the, the traditional moves that are made in the mind. But what, what happens, it seems to me, when you do that is a lot of those mm -hmm. projects wind up looking suspect. Uh, a lot of what seems to be going on in a David Bentley Hart, for instance, is just the kind of invocation of a Neoplatonic structure that you could generate out of Plotinus. Uh, and then the Trinity sort of maps on. And, and I want to say that, last thing I'll say, I want to say that it is true that there is a patristic tradition of, so for instance, you know, associating each member of the Trinity as it were with one of the transcendentals or to some pieces of a Neoplatonic structure. But may, maybe the, the idea there is that that was always seen as a penultimate, a sort of penultimate approximation of, 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 of what the, the race is, as it were, of the Trinity. So maybe talk to us about what, what are the, I don't know, the dangers in those trends or, or what's going on in those trends that we need to look out for as we're trying to, you know, have a more uh, 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 helpful, I guess, notion of the Trinity. Yeah. Those are, that's a really difficult question because those trends are being driven by uh, very deep, deep currents that have been uh, have been flowing for several hundred years at this point, um, and and furthermore, they have to do with with much more fundamental mistakes that mm. don't pertain to the doctrine of the Trinity so closely, but having made those mistakes, the natural outgrowth of that. If you're consistent, which uh, you know, a lot of these guys are extremely intelligent, very, very powerful minds, and uh, are are certainly consistent with their their basic premises and thoughts that just happen to sometimes be wrong or unclear on on on, on some of those, and that's where they go wrong. So that's that's kind of a danger point that I often see, but a lot of the difference has to do with an insufficient distinction between the natural and supernatural orders. Mm -hmm. This has been going on. I mean, it's a larger discussion that perhaps listeners wouldn't be so interested in, but, you know, developments in the, the, the Nouvelle Théologie movement and the Resourcement movement of the 20th century and nature grace debates and reason faith debates and philosophy theology debates that like Blondell started in the late 19th century, were carried on in France and in various iterations in Germany, etc. Once you uh, make certain decisions there that effectively erase the distinction between mm. the natural and supernatural orders, or right. refigure those orders in such a mode that one uh, retrojects upon the other. So the supernatural order 
backwashes upon the natural and right sort of like a, co a cosmic level hylomorphism they're just always irreducibly bound up with one another or something like that yeah yeah there i mean you know there's the ability to uh accurately parse and not just accurately parse but like um adequately parse the distinction is is incredibly difficult incredibly mm -hmm. difficult and if you get it wrong one of the consequences down the line is to do with the doctrine of the trinity you no longer are departing exclusively from supernatural revelation you mm -hmm. think it's possible to demonstrate that the trinity is from reason and things like that you now look at the tradition which as you mentioned joe does use transcendentals or what have you, but uses them only in terms of appropriation only, yeah, right. which is illustrative. In retroactive. Re yeah, re yeah uh, after the mm. fact. Yeah. And is illustrative and in no wise probative and things like that. Mm. Uh, now you see them as not appropriations, but properties of the persons right inflate the persons into the transcendentals and things like that yes and then that becomes and that becomes ingrained in um that becomes ingrained in the uh grammar and dogma and then in the modern age the people read it back and they're like well we can't understand it because they're doing all these things with the greeks and the romans and the language and no one can yeah. understand it and uh that's where the confusion i think comes from that's ryan listen to me brother you have to write the article on that please for me uh, I will pay you $25 and a hamburger if you, if you write that article, uh, because that needs to be clarified. Cause a lot of our friends are really like talking about this right now. And anyway, yeah. So finish. Well, your it's, it's confusing because somebody like Hart, you know, it's, it's so interesting because a lot of folks like a heart are, are kind of, um, heroes of the classical theism debate to a lot of people right and so it seems like here's the guy who's you know eastern orthodox but he's strong on simplicity and it does isn't overplaying the essence energies thing you know so right. heart, heart on one sense you know oh look here's but then yeah when you get to the doctrine of the trinity and i think i think your your point ryan maybe i'm only recently realizing this that the nature grace the nature grace sort of fusion in a sense that perhaps you see in that new school of Trinitarian metaphysicians, if you will, does seem to be the originary project. And, and the, the doctrine of the Trinity is a, yeah, that's, that's the, yeah, that's an inference of that originary move. I think it's that's just a, it's just a casualty of something further up the line. Yeah. That's a very, yeah. that's a very, I, I know everybody, if you don't know what you're listening to, that's a very right. thoughtful observation. That uh, is. Especially because Hart, Hart's publishing, you know, that's precisely behind his universalism book, uh, behind his uh, his recent, um, you're all God, ye are all gods. I call you a gods, can't remember the name of it, on nature and supernature, uh, which uh, I just got to review for Ed Fontes. So uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's very helpful. I think that, that helps us see a lot of what's going on in Trinitarian discourse. Uh, and then as, sort of cached, yeah, cached almost for prospective philosophical value. The Trinity now becomes a, a sort of catalyst to new insight about the world. Uh, uh, yeah, and there, there has to be a great deal of caution. And in fact, as I understand it, most of the time you even get the tradition of the kind of vestiges of the Trinity. Some of the traditional speak that way. They're going back to Dale, right? You know, there's something of the three in one in the in the the you know people you know relating to each other there's an image there you can you can capture but as i understand it it was always more in the mode of <coughs> everything is a little bit like god and god is like nothing else there's an ah reciprocity of the images mm. uh, uh 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 
Yeah, anyway. Yes. Anyway, yeah, I think that's... Yes. Can, yeah, don't drag us down another thing, because yeah, then we'll have to have her on for another 17 yes. weeks, which we will reschedule ad infinitum. Yes. Uh, yes. All right. Well, uh, Ryan, I want to give you the last word here, brother, and then... If there's anything that you feel like you need to sort of tie a bow on that you didn't, of course, that's going to be legion, I imagine, because you can't tie a bow on all the things that we've discussed. But if there is anything in particular that you want to close on, I want to give you the privilege and the opportunity to do that. If not, then I'll just close this out, brother. But yeah, you can have the last word. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Yeah, I, I don't think I have much to add. It's all been said. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but yeah, it's just a, an ongoing project that we all have to engage in as we grow in our knowledge of, of who God is. Well, there is one more. Yes, thing indeed. And Joe, is, anything? Well, I was going to say, Ryan, uh, at least say your class. You're teaching a course on the Trinity, and that's worth saying. Oh, yes. Podcast. Uh, next, uh, this is starting in March. Is that right? uh if i'm recalling uh i, th I think it might be april but uh oh april yeah, yeah i should know because i'm i'm teaching at the same time <laughs> but uh uh but yes uh, ryan for for our listeners if you're interested in learning more about this i've been an, i've been uh uh had the privilege of of, of crashing one of herd's classes recently and he is just a marvelous marvelous teacher very clear very very helpful and he's uh putting together a course on the a course on the Trinity, which is very exciting. Davenant kind of hired her to do a course on the Trinity, but he's done four or five other courses first. And now we're ready. <laughs> now we're ready to do a course on the Trinity. And that's very exciting. So uh, keep, yeah. Uh, if you're interested, very, very much, I highly recommend taking a course with our brother on the Trinity. Yeah, maybe we can um, maybe we can put something at the beginning of the episode for his course and we can put a link in the episode you can put a link in the yeah in the comments yep yeah so we'll put a link in the comments section um yeah i mean uh, if, if if you're thinking about trinitarian stuff right now which everyone is thinking about you have to listen to ryan hurd you just have to he is a conversation partner that you can't deny so that's one of the reasons that um, we love Ryan, uh, but we also love Ryan because Ryan's Ryan. So it's not just because of what you know, brother. We love you for who you are. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thank you, brother. Thank you for joining us. Um, this has been a good conversation. You will obviously be back on at some point in the future. Um, you can find all of our other episodes at uh, on apple itunes and any podcast catcher you can head over to davenantinstitute.org um, you can find us on uh, youtube at davenant institute uh, but joseph i love you brother love you too man ryan thank you sir thank you. and we will see you next time see you